So welcome to series five of A Micro Philosophy, which takes as its theme the title of my new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher. I'm Julian Bagini. Our format is simple. Each of my guests is going to propose one thing to do or to avoid in order to think well, uh, which we'll then all discuss together. And if there's time, I'll chip in a suggestion of my own. Joining me today are two of the world's leading comparative philosophers, people of incredible accomplishment and achievement. Tom Kasulis is Professor Emeritus of Comparative Studies at Ohio State University. He's written numerous books and scholarly articles, mainly on Japanese religious thought and Western philosophy, including Zen Action, Zen Person, Shinto The Way Home, and Engaging Japanese Philosophy, A Short History. Although I should say, Tom, at 700 pages, you have a very strange idea of what a short history is, right? You should see what a a long history would look like. (laughs) (laughs) He's also the author of Intimacy or Integrity, Philosophy and Cultural Difference, based on his Gilbert Ryle Lectures of 1998, a book I am constantly recommending to people. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Peter Adamson is Professor of Philosophy at Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich. He is, well, he was, should we say, a specialist in medieval philosophy. Since 2010, he's been producing and presenting the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast, which is exactly what it says. Now, if you haven't started listening to that yet, I think you have to listen to episodes without any gaps between them to have any chance of catching up. At the time of recording, I think, am I correct to say, on the 414th episode? Sounds about right, yeah. And we're still only at the Renaissance, so I don't know how many episodes there are going to be. Yeah, sorry, everybody. <laughs> it's really not my fault that there's so much philosophy. <laughs> there's nothing I can do. There's a whole planet in thousands of years, so who would have thought it would have added up? There's also a book series with the same title. Now, that's up to its sixth volume on Byzantine and Renaissance philosophy. So we're in the Renaissance on, on both counts. So welcome to Renaissance man, Peter Adamson. Thank you very much. Well, look, Peter, let's let's start with you, perhaps. What is it you'd like us to be thinking about if we want to think better? I wanted to get us to think about uh, actually a way of thinking, which is the thought experiment. And the reason I'm interested in that is that it's a good topic for exactly what, I guess, the reason you invited me and Tom on, because it kind of cuts across different historical and cultural boundaries, right? There are thought experiments in every kind of philosophy in philosophy from every era, right? So one of my favorite thought experiments, for example, is uh, from the medieval Persian philosopher Ibn Sina, also known as Avicenna. And maybe we'll get on to talking about that. It's the so-called flying man thought experiment. And there's thought experiments in ancient philosophy and Indian and Chinese philosophy and so on. Uh, Maybe it's not quite so clear what is a thought experiment and what is just an example. (laughs) So that's something else we could get on to thinking about. But then if you think about contemporary philosophy, there's a lot of use of thought experiments. So something that you would see online, for example, or even in the in that TV series, The Good Place, right? Yeah. There's a joke about a thought experiment, a famous thought experiment, which is the trolley problem, right? So if you're if you're in a situation where you can divert a trolley to kill fewer people rather than more people, would you do it, right? So this is a classic modern day thought experiment. So I thought something that would be interesting to get into is, you know, why do we use thought experiments in philosophy? What are they good for? What might be the disadvantages as well as advantages? Briefly describe the favorite one of yours. So this is something that was devised by Ibn Sina, as I said. So he lived from the 10th into the 11th century. And he's trying to prove that the soul is something distinct from the body, he and this, I think, clearly is a thought experiment. It's not just an example. So he says, imagine that God creates a person who's fully grown and 
has all of their faculties intact. And the person is created in midair so that they're not touching the ground, but they're not falling. So there's no wind. And he says that the person's sight is veiled so they, they can't see anything and there's no sound. And obviously the person's not tasting or, or, or smelling anything. Also, because the person's only just been created, they have no memories of any sensory experiences. So it's like a complete and utter sensory deprivation. The point being that the person has no way to become aware that they have a body, right? Again, that's why the person can't be touching anything. In fact, Messina even says the person's not touching his own limbs, right? So his fingers and limbs need to be splayed out because if he was like had his arms folded, right, then he'd be touching his arms. He's like, oh, what am I touching here? That's my, that must be my own body, right? And so the thought experiment is then used by Messina to show that we must be something distinct from our bodies on the grounds that this flying man, so this person has just been created in midair, would be aware of their own existence, but isn't aware of the existence of his body. And since he's aware of his own existence and he's not aware of his body's existence, he must be something distinct from his body. That's the thought experiment. Okay. And of course, that's interesting because it's uh, people who come to philosophy through Western philosophy will be familiar with Descartes' own attempts to establish the same principle by similar means. But it seems to me that this version is actually perhaps more elaborate uh, it's thought through more of the potential objections, you know, obviously about not touching themselves. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very interesting. Tom, is there any kind of, well, are thought experiments found in, in Japanese thought and philosophy as well? Well, uh, yes and no. And, and that sort of gets at the heart of the issue I want to address. Thought experiments are mistrusted for a reason I, will, I want to elaborate. Uh, the idea that underlies a lot of Japanese philosophy is that it is very useful to make distinctions within a single phenomenon. But that does not mean that things that you distinguish in your thought exist independently. So for example, let's say, what would the Japanese say to Avicenna? That might be a way to approach this. He said, you've done a wonderful thing. You've explained what the soul is, say. Although the Japanese don't like talking about souls, but let's, for the purpose of argument, you've explained what the soul is. But that doesn't mean there is a soul that's independent of the body. You've explained the soul part of human existence. But that does not mean the soul exists independently. Uh, That's the platonic mistake. That if I can talk about the form of something, say, say I'm talking about a rubber ball. Well, I could talk about the shape of the ball, its roundness, or I could talk about its material, the rubber. But that does not mean there's a roundness that exists independently of its material, the rubber. That was Aristotle's criticism, as you know, of Plato. We have informed matter all the time. And because we could think about the form, the shape, independently of the matter, does not mean the form and the matter exist independently. And so the Japanese response would mean you, you've given a wonderful example of the soul part of human existence, but you have not in any way establish the independent existence of the soul. And that would be a kind of Japanese approach, which is what I would want to say is a general principle uh, that underlies, it's also one of my pet peeves, because I think this is a mistake that's made all the time in philosophy. And uh, the Japanese tend to be a little more sensitive to it than other traditions, although I can find examples where they make the same mistake. The idea that because we can look at a phenomenon and distinguish two aspects of it, 
we then jump to the conclusion that each of those aspects exist independently. Hegel. Hegel says, well, we can talk about the development of concepts and we can talk about the development of historical events. And so therefore, we can look at those two and say, oh, look, they exist independently. So maybe the ideas cause the development of the historical events. Uh, no. And that gives us the idea that we have, even in our common sense world, and we hear it all the time, ideas that changed the world. A more Hegelian statement you cannot make. <laughs> but as Marx indirectly pointed out, and I will point out very directly right now, an idea never changed the world. People with ideas changed the world. That is, ideas in people, informed people by ideas, change the world. That's where agency lies. Not in the idea alone, but in people with ideas. That's where the agency lies in history. And that's what Marx was worried about. Obviously, I've done a fantastic job in putting you two together because you've both, as it were, been able to like present your own sort of like suggestions coming out of the, the, the first same thing. They're so connected that, they, that we have to talk about them together. But this, we'll, t- we'll talk more perhaps a little bit later, Tom, about this general issue of you know being able to distinguish things conceptually and jumping to conclusions about what that means for the world. But let's go back to the, the focus on thought experiments for a bit. It, it relates to what Tom was saying, Peter, but a lot of the criticisms of thought experiments is that they tell us a lot about what is conceivable by us, but why does that tell us anything about the world? So, I mean, I, I got a very good objection to this, actually, recently from the physicist, Anil Seth, in his book. He he was talking about his problem he has with, with the, the, the famous zombie thought experiment, which David Chalmers is associated with. So on this thought experiment, it's like, can you imagine someone who is physically identical to a human being and behaviorally identical to a human being, but it just has no inner life? It doesn't have any kind of subjective awareness. And if you can, and he thinks you can, then that's meant to show something. And, and I'm not sure what it's meant to show other than the fact that we can imagine things that may or may not be true. As Seth says, look, I can imagine a jumbo jet flying backwards, but it can't, <laughs> right? The, the way a jumbo jet is constructed, it can't fly backwards. So the fact that I can imagine it tells us nothing. So, Peter, when you say you like this thought experiment, why do you think it's telling us anything more than something about our own capacities of imagination? Yeah, so I think there's actually two things that people use thought experiments for, which are dubious. One is what you just said. So I can imagine something, therefore, and actually this goes back to what Tom was saying. So if I can make a conceptual distinction between two things, they must be distinct, right? Mm. And this is the same with Chalmers, right? So since it seems like the concept of having consciousness is different from the concept of being physically identical to a being that has consciousness, the two things must be distinct, right? Yeah. So that's that's one thing people use thought experiments for, and I agree that one might be suspicious of that. But then I think that there's maybe a more general or just simpler thing that people use thought experiments for, which is what people sometimes call an intuition pump, right? So you present a situation and you say, "So what do you think?" And this is what this is like what happens with the trolley problem, right? So you you sort of take an undergraduate and say, well, what do you think? Would you, would you divert the trolley or not? And what you're doing there is you're soliciting an intuition that's supposed to be morally relevant, right? So for example, you might, uh, you can, you can sort of adjust thought experiments to solicit utilitarian intuitions and non-utilitarian intuitions. So, you know, you can present someone with a thought experiment where you set things up in such a way that they can achieve some enormous good 
by doing something they'd rather not do. And they think, oh, obviously that's the right thing to do. So utilitarianism must be true. And just just for the just anyone anyone who's not familiar with utilitarianism, the view that you know the the outcome with the uh, most positive uh, consequences is essentially the right one, even even if the means might strike us as perhaps problematic. Yeah, I, I like very much what you just said there, Peter. The second one, obviously, uh, the <laughs> second point, because that use of thought experiment, I would endorse very much because what it does, in a way, even though it's a thought experiment and hypothetical. It is forcing us to think concretely. It's an imagined concrete situation. But instead of some general principle about is it better to save more lives or fewer lives or something and arguing abstractly about that, you put the person into a concrete situation. And this is something that Japanese have said is the purpose of fiction. Fiction creates concrete situations for us to understand human existence. And so there's always been a, a kind of statement that in Japan, fiction is understood as serving a philosophical purpose because it gets us into enough detail that we can think about human situations concretely, even though they're not real situations, they're fictional, but they, they force us to think about human existence in a concrete way, whereas there's always been a suspicion of abstract philosophical thinking that deals with principles and generalities that, that take us away from our being embedded in world situations. So in a way, fiction is the thought experiment for the Japanese. I think, though, that that's a really interesting contrast because, I mean, what I was going to say is that I'm actually a little bit suspicious of the intuition pump function of thought experiments, in part because they are so abstract, right? So, I mean, another example, so fam another famous thought experiment is the veil of ignorance in John Rawls. This is a way of arguing for a liberal philosophy. So imagine that you're about to be born into a society and you have to set up the rules of society without knowing who you're going to be in that society. So, for example, since you don't know what race you might be, you would want to set up a society where there's no racism or no race okay. discrimination, okay. right? And one criticism that's been brought to bear on that argument is that the person who's making the decision is this kind of maximally thin, abstract individual yeah. who doesn't have any preferences or history. Right. Or So actually, I think that um, although I think that the parallel you drew there, Tom, between fiction and thought experiments is a very interesting one. I would want to distinguish the two because, as you said, fiction is very concrete and detailed. Right. So think about a Jane Austen novel or something, right? There you have a picture of maybe a moral dilemma, which is extremely textured and is in fact something that could only be confronted by one person, namely the person who's been so richly described by the author of the mm -hmm. fiction. Whereas in a thought experiment, you're being asked to kind of imagine what you would do on the assumption that you're not you. And that you're not a person who could exist, right? Because you're just a person. You're just a kind of generic human being. So imagine you're a generic human being. Now, what would you do, right? Well, it's like, I don't know what I would do. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, right, right. I've never been a generic human being. It's sort of like I'm an identical twin. And people often have asked me, like, do you like being an identical twin? And I say, well, I don't know. I have nothing to compare it to. <laughs> that's so that's one reason I like Ibn Sina's thought experiment, because it really, like, uh, highlights that feature of thought experiment so powerfully because he actually takes the step of uh, setting up the thought experiment to explain why you're just a generic person 
right? Yeah. You've only just been created. You have no history, et cetera. I, I find that very illuminating. I, I, I like that point as a point of refinement on what I was trying to get at, uh, because we, we, this would involve a very complex discussion of what fiction, how much fiction functions in Japanese culture. The way the author is always in the work in a way that is not the case in the Western tradition necessarily. And that creates a, an interesting viewpoint issue of who's speaking. It's not a first person. It's not necessarily the idea that the, it, that the book is written in the first person, but the author is in some way more explicitly taking a point of view, e- even though that person is not in the work. It's by, by the way the Japanese language works. The person is, is giving sort of indications of how the author feels about what's going on. So, so it, it, it ends up a far richer, more complex. So, so really, it ends up adding yet another kind of layer. But I, I take your point exactly. I think that's a very good issue. In fact, that a Japanese philosopher, Nishida, talked about, I'm, I'm not quite sure what people talk about the individual will or individual free choice as being something that's independent of all the conditions under which the person lives because I don't know what I would be independent of all the conditions. Of, you know. So I can't imagine what the Westerner means by complete free choice and unconditioned existence, because I don't mm. know who I would be. So in fact, he's agreeing with you uh, on just that point. Now, let me just sort of pick up on a few things. Is, is, is We've already got so many different sort of lines we could go down. So I think we're agreeing that the thing about a thought experiment is that it's not actually an argument. And some people kind of confuse them for arguments you know so so that you asked to imagine what would happen in a thought experiment you come to a conclusion and therefore the thought experiment is somehow an argument for that conclusion well that, well, that isn't true i mean the fact that it shows something to be conceivable doesn't show it to be true and the fact that it elicits some intuition from you doesn't show the intuition is true it's giving you something to work on but peter you said that you were suspicious of, of that kind of argument and and the reason i like the Avicenna one is in a sense, it sounded almost like it avoids the typical trap. So in other words, a lot of these thought experiments sort of like fool you into thinking you can occupy the position of a kind of uh, abstract, unsituated individual without a background, and you can't. Whereas the Avicenna one, actually, is set up to be precisely that thing. <laughs> yep. Have I got you right? Yeah. And something else I like about it is that he says at the end, if, if someone is presented with this thought experiment and doesn't see that it implies the separation of the soul, then you have to deal with them some other way. And I've always taken that to mean, well, maybe the person you're talking to won't share the intuition that the flying man would be aware of himself. Or maybe they won't be able to follow the logic of what that would imply. But it's more, it's more interesting if what Encina means is that the person wouldn't share the intuition. Because... That, I think, puts its finger on another problem with these thought experiments, which is, so let's take seriously the idea that their function is to serve as intuition pumps. There's a really interesting philosophical question about how valuable it is to find out what your intuitions are. And since Tom and I work on historically and culturally remote traditions of philosophy compared to, you know, modern day European or North American philosophy... Something that I've always been very fascinated by is the way that philosophers in other places and times seem to have just radically different intuitions, which they think are at least as obviously true as the intuitions that we follow, right? And so, I mean, 
I don't think it would be fair to say that like modern day English speaking analytic philosophers are completely oblivious to this, but there is at least kind of cliche that the modern day analytic philosopher is just kind of taking for granted the intuitions of people who live in liberal English speaking democracies as of, you know, 1980s and saying, well, okay, that's kind of our bedrock. That's where we start from when we philosophize and we kind of go from there. But as soon as you do any history of philosophy at all, you probably don't even need to go back very far. You could go to only to the 18th century, right? You'll find different intuitions, not just about ethics. I mean, that's the obvious case, right? Oh, people thought slavery was okay, or people thought sexism was okay. But they had different intuitions about things like the nature of knowledge and the nature of existence, right? So again, to just give one of my favorite examples, in most pre-modern philosophy, in at least that comes from the Greek tradition, it's taken to be simply obvious that one thing can have more being than another. Like, so (laughs) we might say one thing could exist more than another thing. And if you say that to the average English speaking analytic philosopher, they'll probably say that they don't even know what it means. Right. Right. Analytic philosophers love to say that. I don't know what you mean by that. (laughs) Right. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that they're wrong or right about this. I'm just saying that something was taken to be so obviously true that it didn't even need an argument or elucidation. Whereas now it's taken to be obviously false. And of course, your metaphysics will be completely different depending on whether you think that one thing can have more being than another thing. So that's really important to keep track of. Yeah. It's, it's, well, I find it quite interesting, by the way, that you know um, a lot of these philosophical arguments begin with intuitions, and yet a lot of philosophical conclusions end up being very counterintuitive. <laughs> um, so it's kind of ironic, really, that the counterintuitive conclusions actually come from intuitions, which perhaps we shouldn't be taking for granted in the first place. But but just I mean, last perhaps last point on on the flying man, the Avicenna one, because I, I can I can see why you find it interesting. But I think I'm right to say most people are not persuaded this is anything like a good reason to believe in the existence of an immaterial soul. I mean, do you think they're missing something or do you think it's interesting despite the fact it kind of fails in its in its goal? I think it's interesting because of the reason why Avicenna thinks that it works. <laughs> Mm-hmm. actually. So uh, actually a common objection to it is something along the lines of what Tom said, which is uh, a kind of like masked man fallacy or like Superman Clark Kent fallacy. So the flying man might be aware of himself without realizing that his self is a body, just as I might be aware of Clark Kent without re- realizing that I'm aware of Superman or vice versa, right? Because I don't know that they're the same person. So if Clark Kent's in the room, I don't know that Superman's in the room, right? And Avicenna actually literally says in the argument, we know that that of which one is aware is distinct from that of which one is not aware, which is just false, right? (laughs) But at least according to an interpretation that I presented with a colleague of mine, Fedor Benovich, in an article a couple of years ago, we think that Avicenna is aware of this kind of problem. And what he's actually doing is he's saying, well, to be directly aware of something, you must be aware of its existence conditions. So you must be aware of like what would be required for the thing to exist. It's, it gets more complicated than this. <laughs> but the point is that if he has direct awareness of his self without having direct awareness of his body, we can at least rule out that his body is needed for the soul to exist or for the self to exist. And that kind of answers the, the objection that Tom gave originally. But of course, that's a very like contentious assumption. 
So it kind of, it reveals something interesting about Avicenna's epistemology and metaphysics that he thought that the argument works. I don't think that it works, but that's because I don't share all of his other assumptions about epistemology and metaphysics. Okay. I, I want to move on to just Tom's point in a sec, because time is running past you, but I just want to check. Peter, is there anything else you wanted to, to say about thought experiments, actually? Because I know that we've been stopping you at various points and interrupting and clarification. I don't want to, I don't want to change subject before you said a key thing you want to say about thought experiments. Well, I, I mean, I think, I think the, the thing I wanted to say is that they are especially interesting in the context of history of philosophy, in part for, because of the reason I gave earlier, which is that also in the way that they present thought experiments, the ones they choose to give and the intuitions it solicits from them, you see that their intuitions are very different, right? But on the other hand, just as a kind of like for teaching or other contexts in which you want to get people interested in, let's say, non-Western philosophical traditions, if you can find like a, you know, a philosophical anecdote from a Chinese text or a thought experiment from an Islamic text or something like that, that's often a good way in. So it's a great way to sort of hit somebody with something really cool from another philosophical tradition without having to tell them, you know, for 45 minutes about, you know, the history of Islam or what the, you know, translations from Greek into Arabic, whatever, you can just hit them with the flying man argument and they'll be like, oh, that's interesting. About that. <laughs> so I kind of have mixed feelings about thought experiments because they're great teaching tools, but I'm always a little bit suspicious that they're not great philosophical tools. That is fascinating. I think that's, that's a very good point. So look, let's 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 move on now. Tommy, you've already kind of introduced what it is you wanted to, to put on the table in the context of thought experiments. Perhaps you sort of make the point more generally, and perhaps give an example of of this bugbear, which perhaps isn't a thought experiment. Yeah, I, the, the one about which I, I am most peeved lately <laughs> in my thinking is the mind body. We can think about let's call it our body mind experience. And we can think about the body side and all of its functions and so forth and analyze that in great detail and learn a great deal, useful information. We can think about the mental side in great detail and all of its functions. That does not mean that the body and the mind exist separately. And because we keep falling into that assumption that because we can talk about those two aspects separately, they exist separately, we end up First of all, with a lot of philosophical mischief. I hate to blame Descartes because... <laughs> he gets to blame Fred Fling, doesn't he? Gets- yeah, and, 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 and you read Descartes, you know, he has that letter where, where you know, he's written, and she, I guess it's from Elizabeth. Uh, she says, you know, I, I don't understand, Master, what you're saying about this separation. He says, I'm not saying they're separate. Haven't you ever danced? <laughs> you know, so, so, so I mean, he knows he's not saying they're se- separate. He's saying they're substantially different, and that—that's whatever that means, right? Uh, but that doesn't mean that they're separate for him in a way that they're not interactive, right? In fact, I think it's stronger than that. They're more than interactive. They are a single thing. I mean, you know, now you start talking about Spinoza trying to say that they're two different modes of the same thing, right? But, Let's not get into all the technical things. Let's get into far more concrete things. Because we tend to think of the different functions of each and think of them as separate, we do very strange things that are very harmful. If I'm sick, very often what I'll do is I'll go to the doctor to get my body fixed as if it were a car, an automobile. I turn my 
car over to the mechanic and say, fix it. I'll be back in an hour, <laughs> right? And I go to the physician and I say, fix it. You know, change the oil, give a medication, whatever it is, and I'll be back. You know, as if I am something that's not intimately involved with what's going on in the healing. That is, we now know from all kinds of evidence, not the best way for healing to take place. It's also not the best way to understand what's wrong with me. Disease and healing are always psychosomatic. That is, there's both a psychological and a somatic part. They're both part of a single function, a single entity. You could say, this is, well, yeah, sure. Well, it comes from all kinds of places when you start. I've talked to weightlifters because of some uh, physical arthritic operations I've gone through. I've had to do a lot of rehab and talk to weightlifters. And they will show, you could do this exercise. Now, when you do this exercise, concentrate on this muscle. And that will strengthen that muscle. But you could do the exact same exercise, exact same movement. But in your mind, focus on a different muscle, and a different muscle will be strengthened. Think about that. Mechanically, exactly the same. But because you are focusing on a different muscle in the leg, a different muscle will be emphasized and strengthened. So it's, it's a holistic system, and, and we are denying all kinds of things because we tend to think of them as separate. One of the interesting things about that is that, of course, I mean, some people claim that that's the reason why some uh, complementary uh, medicines right. are actually quite effective, even though people might think that their understanding of the biological mechanisms is completely wrong because, yes, you, because right. you're treated as a whole person. So you get that kind of benefit. You no, may not right. you may not get the direct sort of like biomechanical benefit, but because they're linked, you get that benefit. But the question I've got here is, I mean, Peter was talking earlier about how intuitions are often radically different in different cultures. Now, yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people would assume that the intuition that, you know, mind and body are, are different, are separate things, that the, the mind can exist without the body is an intuition that's a kind of a human universal. Now, I don't know how much you're speaking simply as as, 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 as Tom Kasudesi or, or as Tom Kasudesi expert in Japanese thought, but is are you saying that that intuition isn't as strong in Japanese thought? No, it's, it's even explicitly stated that they are not separate. An example of this is that, in fact, the goal is to make them even more integrated. You have a single system and to make them work more harmoniously as a single whole. A good example is this. If I'm sitting down at my computer, word processing, and I'm a touch typist, actually just think about that rather deeply for a minute. It's a really remarkable and marvelous event. A word is in my mind, and it shows up on the screen. I mean, that's magic, right? <laughs> but let's see, think about what actually happens, right? It shows up in my mind, and my fingers move on a keyboard and it shows up on the screen. Now, the interesting thing there is, first of all, it wasn't that way when I, before I learned to type. Mm -hmm. I had to look at the keyboard and tell my fingers where to go. Now, if you put a template of a keyboard in front of me and say, and told me to write in the letters where all the, the letters are on the keyboard, I couldn't do it without taking my fingers and say, well, A, A is where the pinky is. That's over there. You know, C, oh, that, that's, the, that's the middle finger. My fingers know where the keys are. That is my experience, not my uh, cerebral function of memory. 
my fingers know. I can explain the neurology of that, but that's not the point. The experience of it is my fingers know where the keys are. And the only way I can fill in that chart very efficiently is by having my fingers answer where the keys are. So what happened is my mind had to train my fingers to know where the keys are so that then the fingers know where the keys are. And my mind no longer does. Yeah. And this is what the, the Japanese concept is, is what we have to do is, is, is take the mind and the body. So first the mind leads the body. This is habit formation. And then we get the mind to be able to f- take its forms. And Japanese are called kata. You know the karate kid and so forth. You, you, you wipe on, wipe off, right? You learn the forms of the movement. Then the body does that part naturally so that then your mind can respond through and with the body to the situation. So you have this greater and greater integration of the mind and body so that you can respond spontaneously with Body mind, which is the word mm-hmm. that's used, it's a single word. It's what they sometimes call body mind oneness. It makes it clear that that's what you're getting at. So it's almost like one is a positive and negative whole of a magnetic field, and what you're trying to do is make that magnetic field as strong as possible by making each pole as effectively interactive with the other. And that is the assumption. That's the intuition, yeah. and it's in everything. One of the great texts on how to write a poem starts out with, "What posture do you sit in?" Right? How how do you breathe? And that's all before you pick up the, the brush and start to write. And then how to hold the brush. Then you start saying, how do you prepare the mind? How do you use the words in previous poems and all that sort of more cognitive things? I, unfortunately, I haven't got to that stage on, on the keyboard yet. And in fact, I don't oh, think okay. I get to it much. You know, uh, perhaps like I, when I play tennis, I have that experience perhaps once sure, in a two hour session. Sports. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sports, playing a musical instrument. Yeah. yeah. Sports is great because. If you think about how you learn to play tennis, you had to think about positioning your feet, getting your arm in the right motion, so forth. And the whole idea is to make that very interesting, the English word, second nature, right? So you don't have to think about it. So it becomes nature, but it's not natural because you didn't have it. You weren't born with it, but it becomes second nature so that then you can respond without having to think about it. Well, I mean, the mind-body problem is something you could go into on, on huge directions here. So I want to sort of perhaps not go more onto that. But I mean, Peter, the more, more general point about people sort of reaching conclusions about what is on the basis of uh, what they can distinguish conceptually. I mean, do you see any sort of like examples of sort of periods and places in history of philosophy where... I don't know, that's been particularly extreme or, or the other way around, where places, times and places where people have been very resistant to that kind of thinking. And that's a huge question, but, you know. Yeah, that is a big question. I mean, one thing that leaps to mind is that in Latin medieval philosophy, since scholastics are famous for churning out loads of distinctions, they sort of extrapolate from things that Aristotle says to develop a whole different kind of a whole menu of ways in which two things could be identical or not. So you have numerical identity or non-identity, like I'm the same person as myself. I'm not the same person as my twin brother. Mm -hmm. You have formal identity where I'm a human, my brother's a human. So we're formally identical, right? But we're distinct numerically and so on. So I think that in the Aristotelian tradition, they're actually pretty good knowing like where they are in terms of like the, when you contrast two things and say that they're the same or different, 
an Aristotelian, especially an Aristotelian at a medieval university, will say, well, same or different in what sense, right? Right. And the strongest form of identity would be something like both numerical and conceptual identity, but you can have conceptual non-identity and numerical identity, right? So for example, I'm both professor of philosophy in Munich and I'm the person who's uttering this sentence, right? So those are kind of two dis- different concepts or descriptions you could apply to me, but they're clearly true of the same person. And no one would say that I must be two different entities because these two different descriptions apply to me, right? So the, the mistake that Tom's making is actually one that people in general are very good at not making, right? So people in general don't think that every time they can describe something or think about something in two different ways that we've got two things, right? And so it's an interesting question why that would be more apt to happen in the case of something like a mental phenomenon, which may or may not be identical to a physical phenomenon. So it seems to be much more tempting to think that those are two distinct entities, then it is tempting to think that, you know, Superman and Clark Kent are different humans or actually, maybe he's not a human. He's a Kryptonian, isn't he? But you <laughs> yeah, know, yeah. A, a d- different person, right? So we all know he's the same person, even though there's sort of two um, sets of descriptions you can apply to him. And even though most of the people he knows don't know that he's the same as. Right? Peter, in the medieval tradition, I mean, you have sort of a triad, right? Mind, body, and soul. Right now, does that come into play? Yeah, I was thinking about that while you were talking that that this, so we, again, this is sort of going back to what we were saying about people having different intuitions in different times and places, because we talk about the mind body problem as if it's just obvious what the mind and the body are. But for example, if you think about classical Indian philosophy, Mm -hmm. what's going on in the mind is actually considered to be a lot like what's going on in the body. So there's a whole bunch of phenomena there, like thoughts and desires or whatever, memories maybe. But that's not the self, mm-hmm. right? The self is just the subject of consciousness, which could be aware of or conscious of both mental activities and physical activities. And so in the Indian context, you'd have at least three layers, probably more because they love their their lists and layers. but to kind of oversimplify, you might have a kind of some physical phenomena, some mental phenomena, and then the actual person or the actual self that's kind of observing all that. In the Islamic and also late ancient and medieval European context, it's more like you've got a soul and you've got a body, but the soul is responsible for doing things like digestion and imagination and motion, right? That's all explained with reference to the soul. Plants and animals have souls as well. And the thing that's special about humans is the intellectual or rational soul. So they're not focusing on consciousness, at least until Avicenna comes up with this flying man thought experiment sort of to come back full circle. So he's really interested in the phenomenon of self-awareness, but that was kind of new that he brought that into the discussion. In the Aristotelian tradition, they don't think of the mind as like the seat of consciousness at all. They think of the mind as the part of the soul that does abstract thinking or that grasps universal concepts or proves things in philosophy or whatever. And so the, their whole way of, of mapping this space is different from what we have in this kind of post-Cartesian world. So you have, so there we have like three different options, right? So you have the Indian option, which is consciousness, then mental phenomena, then physical phenomena. You have the Aristotelian tradition, which is 
a body and a soul, but the soul has this huge range of different activities it can perform. And then you have the mind-body contrast, which is in some ways much more simplistic, which we seem to have gotten trapped in in the last few centuries. My, what should I say? Intuition, I guess, we're using, <laughs> uh, has been that Descartes got into that kind of, what you just call kind of simplistic one, was in a way trying to divide up the territory for science and religion for kind of historical reasons and say, religion, stay over there. That's theology. The church, you do that. And the rest of the stuff is substantially different. And that's for science. Each has its own domain. Church, stay out of science. Science, stay out of religion. And let's go forward. I mean, as a, that's kind of a simplistic thing, but some kind of deal had to be made because society was was about to tear itself apart. And this seemed to be a kind of philosophical uh, dividing of the territory. And so a, a nice, simplistic, you know, two sides of the brain, two sides of reality, two sides of thing. You do this, you do this. Everybody has their own territory. And so you, a nice dualism was very helpful. But you're the historian of Western <laughs> philosophy. I don't know if that makes sense. But that seems to be at least a way of looking at why that kind of dualism was so attractive. Well, that's another whole separate rabbit hole. But I mean, this does lead perhaps to the last brief thing we'll talk about before we're wrapping up, because you now brought in sort of history. And I think, you know, you have to understand a little bit of history sometimes to know what's going on. I mean, a lot of the time we're told, look at the arguments, right, as though they emerged in a complete historical vacuum. Whereas actually, if you look what's going on at the time, things can look a bit different. So that relates to the thing I was going to put to you, because, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have two you know, fantastic comparative philosophers in the room. And I would say that in general, it is a good thing if you want to think well to not be too narrow, to to think widely, to look at a variety of sources, different types of sources, et cetera, et cetera. That seems to be uncontroversial, but the, the, the problem you come up against that is the old breadth depth problem, as we might call it, which is that, you know, it seems that at least for every sort of like, you know, mile you go broader, you go a few meters uh, shallower. I, I, you, there's only a certain volume of material one, one can, can think about. So I was just curious to what both of you had to sort of say about, you know, that breadth depth problem. Is it just a trade-off or is it misunderstood? Peter, what do you think? Well, I, I think the first thing I would say is that, I mean, if we assume that there is genuinely a trade-off there, they're both necessary. So when I'm doing my podcast, so I, my podcast comes out once a week. So obviously I don't have time to achieve the mastery on each topic I'm covering that a real specialist would have on it. And the reason why I can do this at all is that there's a whole bunch of specialists who have done that and I go read what they wrote and then I kind of summarize and put it together, hopefully nicely packaged 25 minute podcast. So I think people who are more interested in breadth, and I guess that might be me, at least in some of what I'm doing, they really depend on the people who have depth on specific issues. But on the other hand, I think you're, what you were was sort of behind your question, the implication that maybe it's a false dichotomy is also true. So imagine, actually go back to what Tom just said about Descartes. So what Tom was sort of implicitly saying there as well, if you want to understand Cartesian dualism, you better know all about the Protestant Reformation and the wars of religion, right? <laughs> and now, I don't know, I haven't gotten to Descartes in the podcast, so I have no idea whether what you just said about science and theology <laughs> is true. But um, it's, let's say for the sake of argument that that's at least a plausible reading 
well, that shows that if all you did was just read Descartes and focus on what Descartes was doing, then there were, you would miss not just something relevant, but something completely determinative of his whole motivation as a philosopher. So I think that there, there's definitely room for people who want to range over lots of different topics. And there's definitely room for people who just want to focus on the same text and oh. think are deeper and deeper. But if, if you really have these kind of blinders on so that you don't see any breadth at all, then your narrow, deep work will also suffer, I would say. So I think both need each other. Good, good point. Tom, what, what do you make of the breadth depth? Peter said a lot of what I would say. Uh, I, I, I think it, both are necessary. I think you need a good grounding in the breadth to start with. I mean, I studied only Western philosophy until I completed my philosophy general exams for the doctorate. Then I started studying Asian philosophy. So I had a general map of Western philosophy as much as you can as a graduate student, had it as a, as a basis. And I taught Western philosophy quite a bit after that. So I, I continued to have that grow, which gave me a kind of uh, lay of the land as a kind of resource, like like knowing where, it's almost like knowing where the books are in the library, how to be able to go deeper when something comes up and then developing separately, getting a separate degree in Asian philosophy to do the same sort of thing with, with Asian traditions. And I see my approach then as more like a, a kind of clinician who comes to a, a problem, goes into the patient's room, and then sort of says, of what I know, what seems relevant. Then I go back and look at the appropriate place and, and doing it as Peter says, look at what the experts say about that problem. But I'm not limited to what just a Western person says or what a, what a Japanese person says or an Indian person says. I, I can look, I know where to look in various places. And so that gives me a great richness of resources so that what for me is the real issue is what's the question? <laughs> because I think too often the cultural uh, myopia comes in thinking we know what the question is. And, th and that's where we go wrong. Because if we keep asking the same question, we've been coming up with the answers, the answers to the previous question, and the answers that the questions that answer raises, and then the next question goes to that. We end up with this nice trajectory. We give this great illusion we're making progress. But maybe the question isn't properly formed, or we have learned other things outside philosophy that make that question no, no longer the right question. I mean, think about what we now know because of computers about artificial intelligence and so forth. So philosophy of mind questions, epistemology questions can't be the same. Think about what we know about neurology. So epistemology questions can't be the same. So the question has to change. Now that we know about how culture influences thinking, epistemological questions can't be the same. So what's the question? That's where I think it comes in. And that requires a kind of, I would add something. You have breadth and depth, but there's imagination. Looking at the whole thing and saying, can I reconceive what the question is? Because maybe we're asking the wrong question. And that's where I think the whole thing comes together. I can see that in the case of free will, for example, people say, do we have free will? And they're taking yeah. one conception of free will, which is actually very sort of local and historically unusual. That's right. And if you look That's at right. how freedom in the more human freedom is, has been conceived over different times and places, this, this thing we assume is the problem of free will is a, a problem of free will. I mean, on the breadth depth thing, the only thing, the, the thought I had was, you know, we, we've learned that uh, time and space are relative. Up, up and down, 
and, and left and right. Well, that's actually relative. So, you know, fl- flip it 90 degrees, you know, why, why talk about breadth and depth? You know, there are two ways of going. Uh, there's, yeah. you know, we, we call them the sideways up and down, but that's just, that's just arbitrary. So there's a sense in which you get a kind of depth by going what we call sideways because you're going deep, you're going deeper into the problem on different axis. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. When you say something's good, I, I take that to be a uh, thing. <laughs> well, listen, we, we could, as usual, we could talk for a very, very long time, but I, um, I, I want to keep it manageable and I, I don't want to keep you for too long. Just to say, so uh, there are other episodes in this uh, series to, to listen to, just uh, follow us on wherever you get your podcasts, uh, Micro Philosophy. And also, I, I, you're obliged to say, and you, do you say this, Peter, with yours? Please leave a review, like, share. All podcasts seem to do these these days because I think you have to, don't you, to play the numbers game? Well, I started out in 2010 when it was a more innocent period <laughs> in podcasting history, and so I didn't. I never said it at the beginning, so I still don't say it. Good but for you. You probably should. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't. Probably not. Actually. Should I tell everyone to buy your book so that you don't have to? Do it yourself. Everyone should buy Julian's new book. Thank you very much, very much. And I, I would like to say, you know, um, go, go away. And I mean, I, I think, I think certainly, if you don't know the history of Philosophy Without Gaps podcast, you should certainly have a look there. Could I say one thing? One last plug for my book, the Engaging Japanese Philosophy. It's not just about Japanese philosophy. It's in a way a question of what does philosophy mean in a different culture. So it's a question about what is philosophy. So it is in a way reimagining philosophy in a very concrete way. So, and, and I've intentionally made it not technical. All the technical stuff's in the footnotes. Of those 700 pages, 250 pages are endnotes. So skip all that. <laughs> right. So, so you know, that, that's for the people who say, Why, what's his justification for saying that? That's all back there. So you could read it through without even looking at all the technical stuff and, and get a kind of interesting story of philosophy in a different context. And I'm saying that not just to plug the book, but in light of what we've just been talking about, it is a kind of uh, reimagining of philosophy that actually took place in a different place in a different time. Well, listen, there's so much you can learn from, from both Peter Adamson's and Tom Cassoulis's work. So just uh, uh, look them up. And uh, there's so little time in the day that leaves very little time to read my book. But that's fine. If you go away and, and, and find out more about either Tom or Peter, I'll be very, very happy. And I won't give a damn that you haven't bought my book. Um, although if you, do, if you do that as well, just buy it and don't read it, okay? You haven't got time to read it, but just 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 buy it and do as a favor. Leave it out to impress guests. Look, Tom, Peter, thank you so much indeed. An incredibly Thanks. interesting and, and rich conversation. And uh, uh, we'll be back with that episode soon. So if nothing prevents, I'll see you soon. Thank you.